Will you please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. And these brothers have some Bibles, that's why they're coming to the front to distribute Bibles to anybody who might need one. So as they make their way to the back, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you. It's marked at the book of Philippians. If you've been with us over the last few months, you might have been paying any attention. You might be asking, why are we in Philippians rather than 1 Peter? We're in the midst of a series in 1 Peter. We're in uh, chapter 3, but we're taking a break today uh, on this passage in Philippians. I hesitated to mention that, hoping nobody would notice, but, but why is that? All right, fine, I'll tell you. It all sounds like excuses, but here we go. Uh, this past week was, uh, was dominated by some of the building issues that I mentioned earlier. So we had a lot of time on that. We also had our men's retreat Friday and Saturday. I was speaking at our men's retreat. By the way, guys who didn't go, we, we had a great time. And we look forward to doing the same next year. And uh, we look forward to the same kind of great time. So we'll promote that to you next year. But I encourage you to think about uh, going. We did have a great time. And then in addition to that, the passage in 1 Peter that we will look at next week is, by all accounts, one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. It uh, talks about Jesus descending to the lower parts and preaching to the spirits in prison. Anybody want to take a shot at that? Then it goes on to talk about baptism and seems to indicate at first blush that baptism saves us. So you have a, a couple of very large issues. We will deal with those next week, but that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So today, it's an opportune time, though, for us to look at a passage in Philippians, a passage that is centered on one major theme of the joy that we have in Christ, but we, we have this joy because of the unity that we have in Christ. It's an opportune time for us to think about that, not because there's any that I know of disunity, though pastors are always the last to know, but rather because this uh, is a, a time of celebration for us. Just last week, we celebrated our anniversary dinner, our celebration dinner. We heard a number of testimonies from many of you about how God has worked in, in your life. We hope to be celebrating then the advance of God's work and the expansion of this room as well in the coming weeks. So it's an opportune time for us to focus on this book and its message of the joy we have, but the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And the four chapters of the book of Philippians are couched in a context that has Paul, the one who wrote it, in adverse circumstances. And so as he talks about this unity and this joy that we have, he's doing so in the context of adversity that he is experiencing. And as a result of that, it's instruction for us on how to handle adversity in our own lives as well. Those of you who've been here for a while have heard me say a number of times with regard to adversity, adverse circumstances, trials, that we are always in one of three situations. We're either in a trial or we've recently emerged from a trial or we're on the verge of going into a trial. I'm just full of encouraging words for, for everyone. But I say that based upon what Scripture tells us. Job chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. 
Job chapter 14, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And then, famously, James chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And just that, that one verse, James chapter 1 and verse 2, it tells us four things about, about trials, that they are unwanted. That's why they're called trials. They're difficult circumstances. They're unexpected. Uh, it's whenever, uh, excuse me, unavoidable. It says whenever, not if, but when you're going to fall into these. And then they are unexpected because you fall into them. We face them. It's the same word for falling into. And then they are unlimited in their variety. They are trials of many kinds. It may be a trial of a relationship. It may be a trial of a health issue or a financial issue. And so since trials are our common lot, we should not think, as many of us often do, that in a month or two, when the current trouble is over, we'll be freed from difficulty. Rather, because this is our common lot in a fallen world, we should rather think about how to handle difficulty when, not if, it arises. This morning, from the book of Philippians, we have an example of one who, in the midst of trial, not only maintained joy but he encouraged others as well. In the book of Philippians, I believe we have one of the most profound examples of how to handle difficulty in all the Word of God. And I say that because of the words of verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, why is that a profound example of handling difficulty? Well, Paul, who wrote it, goes on to say at the end of verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Philippians provides a glimpse of what I believe to be the height of Christian maturity and how to handle difficulty. And I say that because we're told in the opening chapter of the book about the circumstances in which Paul, who wrote this, finds himself. By the time you get to the end of the book, he's saying, Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. And he's saying, I've learned whatever the circumstances, they're with to be content. And I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. So the question is, what are those circumstances that he's in? Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart and whether I, now notice this, am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. The mention of chains in verse 7 is because Paul is under house arrest in Rome when he writes this letter. And that's why it is one of the most profound statements in Scripture about how to handle difficulty. That's why it is an example, a shining example of Christian maturity, because in the midst of being under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard for nothing other than preaching the gospel of Jesus, Paul can say, rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. And I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
And that's in keeping with his famous words in Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so in chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says this, It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, how has it become clear to everyone, including those in the palace guard, that the reason Paul is under arrest is because of Christ? Well, here's how. You know, they have chained him, but the truth is this now gives him an opportunity to have a captive audience for the gospel. So they're getting preached to and preached at. And that news is traveling throughout the palace guard. In effect, Paul is saying, God has worked this out so that I have this captive audience for the gospel. So in the midst of this difficulty, he maintains this kind of optimistic, positive, joyful attitude. How was he able to do that? We get the answer in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for this sacred time to calm our hearts, to focus our minds upon the truth of your word. Lord, you know your people and the burdens that have been brought into this room. We pray, Lord, that as a result of our time in your word, you would grant us encouragement from the truth that you are orchestrating all things for the good of your people from your throne. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So at the beginning of this letter to this church in a city called Philippi, and thus the name Philippians, Paul provides a report to them about how he prays for them, a prayer report. And as you read the beginning of the letters in your New Testament, you often find that. If you were to read 1 Thessalonians, you would find very early on in the first chapter, Paul recounting to that church in Thessalonica how he prays for them. In 2 Thessalonians, he does the same thing. In Colossians chapter 1, he does the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 1, he does the same thing. So this is a common feature of these letters in your New Testament, the letters of Paul in particular, where he would seek to encourage those to whom he was writing, addressing things that were happening with them and to them by the content of his prayers. He's writing because he knew something about what was going on and he's trying to address it. But he's also telling them, my way of addressing and partnering with you and aiding you in your difficulties or in your circumstances is not simply by writing and instructing you, but is also by praying for you. And here's then how I pray for you. And it was designed to be an encouragement to them. So verses 3 through 6 are that very thing. Now think about it. He's chained to a Roman guard, and he's writing to encourage them. And you need to just pause. I need to pause. And think about when we are in adversity, 
who are we thinking about? We're constantly thinking about moi, right? Constantly focused on ourselves. If we think about other people, very often we're thinking about other people in terms of what they're failing to do for me in my difficulty. And here is Paul not thinking of himself, but thinking of those that God has sent for him to minister. And so in verse 3 he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. So what is it that Paul would recall about these people to whom he's writing that would cause him to be thankful when he remembers them? Well, let me give you just some of the things he would have remembered about these Philippian Christians. He would have remembered a businesswoman named Lydia. In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, it records the missionary journeys of Paul. And on his second missionary journey, he stopped in the city, Philippi. And there he met a businesswoman named Lydia. He gave her the gospel, and she received the good news of Jesus. And she became the first convert on the continent of Europe. She, in turn, showed hospitality to Paul and to his associates before and after their imprisonment. And the church in Philippi met at Lydia's house. And so Paul says, I thank God when I remember Lydia. Who else might he remember? Well, in Acts chapter 16, we are told that Paul's associates were, were put, in, put in jail. And you may remember that the Lord sent an, an, an earthquake in this this, uh, this jailer, this Philippian jailer, said, was in fear, and he said, what shall I do? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And this jailer in Philippi came to Jesus. <laughs> so now he's part of the church meeting at Lydia's house. And so Paul says, I thank God every time I remember Lydia, and every time I remember that Philippian jailer. What else would he be thankful for? The Bible tells us that the churches in the province of Macedonia were particularly generous churches to the cause of Christ and to the gospel enterprise. Second Corinthians chapter 8 tells us of the generosity of the Macedonian Christians and that out of their own need they gave generously to Paul to further him in his work. The city of Philippi was located in Macedonia. And so Paul would not only remember Lydia and that unnamed Philippian jailer, he would remember these past gifts from these generous Christians in Philippi. And not only that then, he would remember the present gift that was the occasion of this letter. That another gift now is being brought to Paul while he is in prison. So Paul is joyful because Paul is thankful. You show me a joyless person and I will show you an ungrateful person. I had occasion several years ago to be with someone that God had, has placed in, in my path for me to help on numerous occasions and help in numerous ways. And this person was asking for help again. And for a number of reasons, most importantly, his own good. I said, I'm not going to do that. And in response, this person says, quote, what have you ever done for me? Now, I tell you that story to just say that this is the natural lot of humanity, to be ungrateful. As we focus upon ourselves and focus upon the, 
wants, not necessarily needs, but the wants that we all continually have, if those are not met, we become angry and we are ungrateful for what we have been given. We are so consumed with ourselves, we don't recognize all that's been done for us. And so Paul understood that this is what people had done for him. Most importantly, this is what God had done through these people, and he was expressing his thanks to encourage them. And I ask you, have you been ministered to by other people? Have you been ministered to? Have you been served by people in this room? The answer to that for almost everyone here is yes. But then we need to ask the question, how often do we tell people that? How often do we encourage those who have ministered to us because of the work their ministry has accomplished in us? You know, just today, there are many people who prepared for you and for me to come today and sit in this room. They prepared long before most of us got here. They prepared setting things up. They prepared printing things and folding things, and getting here early enough to turn stuff on and to practice with the instruments and to prepare Sunday school lessons and all sorts of things. There is almost no limit to the number of people that we should have in mind to say, thank God for you. So I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, take a look if you would. That we should be, with regard to our partners in the gospel, which is what verse 5 calls us, we should be thankful for our partners in the gospel. And we should be thankful like Paul was often. He says in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. The implication here is I think of you often, and so I'm frequently thanking God for you. His mind often went back to those events surrounding the establishment of that church in Philippi. He remembered those first converts who were won to the Lord and nourished under His ministry. He remembered their loyalty to Christ and their warm support of His own ministry. And whenever those thoughts would flood His mind, He would pause to thank God for His partners in the ministry that God had given Him in that, in that city. Last week, we, in our anniversary dinner, took time to have testimonies a little over an hour of testimonies from God's people about a variety of topics with regard to how God has worked in the lives of His people. But many of those, those of you who were there know centered upon how God has blessed us through one another. And that is God's design, that we be gospel incorporated, partners in the gospel who are in relationship and who are encouraging and being encouraged. And as a result, we should be thankful for our partners in the gospel, but I say secondly in your outline, we should pray for our partners in the gospel as well. In verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. The way this is written in Greek, the original language of your New Testament, it indicates that Paul would pray for them regularly, often intentionally. So let me make a suggestion to you, that you make a list of people in the church if you want a complete list of people in the church, we can actually give you a printed directory. We don't put those out on the table because so we, we don't want anybody who just wanders in to have uh, contact information if uh, that's just available for anyone. But these are available upon request, and if, you have, if you're part of our database, you can print that out yourself, actually. So if you would like a directory, in, 
request one at the information center. We'd be happy to get a printed directory to you so that you have the names of people in this church so that as a mnemonic, as you, as you remember them and think about them and give thanks for them. In verse 4, Paul is saying, I pray for you intentionally and regularly. And he says, I do so with joy. Now remember, he's under house arrest, but he prays for them with joy. And he's telling this to them as an example of how they can have joy in the midst of their trials. So what is joy? Well, joy is not what we normally think of. We mix up joy and happiness. Happiness has to do with what happens. If what happens is good from my perspective, then all's good. But if what happens, happenstance, is not to my liking, is not favorable, well, then I'm I'm not happy. But joy is not dependent on circumstances. It is constantly available because it is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit then are to have joy. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It focuses rather on that which is permanent and unchanging. In particular, God's work in His people. Most contexts in the New Testament of this word joy have to do with the source or the work of God in His people for which joy is the result. And so here's a working definition of joy from your New Testament. It is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. An abiding sense of delight that even though I don't know how, even though I don't know how this is going to work out, even though this looks bleak, an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. And we forget that. We forget that God is at work, and therefore we lose joy. And so we need to be reminded. Allah, chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice, I will say it again, rejoice. And we also, because we forget, we need to hear this, friends, we need to look outside ourselves Because it's hard to see ourselves. Sometimes we're in circumstances where it's hard, yea, impossible for us to see how this is going to work out. But God promises it's going to work together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. We know that intellectually. I just can't see it. But God in His grace gives you all sorts of examples of things you can see and how He is working. And so remind yourself of that. Look outside yourself outside your own individual life in your current circumstance. I've had this happen to me a number of times. I couldn't see what God was going to do. And I began to lose, I began to lose faith. I began to falter in my belief that it would work. That somehow God would work this. One such situation was in 2006 where my dear mom, now with the Lord, had advanced in her Alzheimer's. She, we needed a place to care for my mom. But we couldn't arrange that. Some of you know that story. And I worked for months. As my mom lived with us, but we couldn't care for her. We couldn't meet her needs. And so we searched and we prayed. And I couldn't. And I won't bore you with all the details, but we came down to a deadline on December 22nd of 2006, just before Christmas a Friday afternoon at that. And God, through a series of circumstances, prompted me to make a phone call 
to a woman I had never met who made arrangements for my mom to find the perfect place for her. The next day, December 23rd, we were able to place her in a location near our home where I could visit her regularly. God knew what he was doing. and He taught me an important lesson. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but God certainly did. I was encouraged just this past week as I heard about God's work in and through other people. A young man in our church, not yet teenage, a boy in our church, just uh, last week was looking after another boy in our church his age. Was having some difficulty going into his class. And this boy in our church went to another adult and said, hey, can you come with me and help? And then this dear sister went and helped. God's at work in the lives of his people often in ways we don't see, but we need to make it a point to thank him for all the ways he's at work that we do see. Joy comes from the knowledge that God is at work in our lives, but also in the lives of others. And this joy that we have at God's work in our lives and in the work of others is because, verse 5 says, we are partners in the gospel. Partners in the gospel. In your outline, I've used the word partners because verse 5 uses partnership. Now, the word that is translated partnership, the Greek word, is one you're familiar with. It's koinonia. We often translate that. In fact, the King James Version says your fellowship in the gospel. We often translate it that, fellowship, because it means to have something in common. But there are a number of attitudes and approaches in our culture that keep us from being partners and emphasizing that which we have in common. Let me give you a couple of those. One is, in our culture, there's this idea of inclusivism. That's the problem with this thing called the ecumenical movement. It says, Let every, let's include everyone. We're, not just, we're just one big happy family. It doesn't matter what you believe. Doctrine divides. And so, it doesn't matter what you believe. Y'all, come on. That's ecumenism, inclusivism. That's the one extreme. But here's the other extreme, individualism. Individualism says, I don't need anyone. Inclusivism says, we'll include everyone. The individualist says, I'll do my own thing. The church exists to meet my needs when I feel those needs, and the work of the ministry is something I'll pursue on my own. In individualism, there's no sense of community, no submission to accountability. These attitudes are not the New Testament concept of partnership, koinonia, fellowship. It speaks of unity of purpose. It means to have something in common. It rules out individualism. And notice, according to verse 5, this partnership is partnership in what? In the gospel. And so that rules out the inclusivism. It is based on the truth of the Word of God, the gospel. And the preposition that's actually translated in verse 5, in the gospel, carries with it the idea of the advance of the gospel. The Philippians, like we are to be, were partners, not just to sit around and espouse the truth in our meetings, but partners for the specific task of advancing the gospel throughout the world. And so New Testament fellowship or partnership is a unity of purpose that focuses on spreading the body of truth, the gospel of Jesus throughout his world. And for that task to be accomplished, the church members at Philippi and in Trenton were to work. 
They witnessed to others, prayed for one another, gave sacrificially for the support of the ministry. They were truly partners in the gospel. And in verse 5, their partnership was in the gospel and it was a partnership that was consistent. Notice verse 5 again. I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we've already rehearsed briefly this first day. You know, Paul, on his second missionary journey, he goes into the city of Philippi, and he knows no one there. And there is no synagogue in the city of Philippi, but he sought out some Jews who would be familiar with the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and its promise of one who would come, the Messiah, the Christ. And he preached the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, and there Lydia comes to faith. And then God works providentially to bring the jailer to faith. And after Paul left the city of Philippi, a flourishing work, that church continued to give him financial support as we have seen. And even at the occasion of the writing of the book of Philippians, a member of the church of Philippi, Epaphroditus, made a heroic mission. He risked his life to bring much needed financial aid to Paul. That this church might identify with this one who's imprisoned for preaching the gospel. So from the first day until the present, you have been my partners in the gospel, says Paul. You know, when we have our testimony meetings, in our church we do them only once a year. But when many churches have testimony meetings, I should say it that way, often a Sunday night service or a Wednesday is devoted to maybe once a month or once a quarter to testimonies. That's, that's a great thing. It's a fine thing. But I've sat in those services, and a lot of times folks will get up and say, I thank God for my salvation, which is, a, which is a great thing to thank the Lord for. It all starts there. But, you know, one of the things that we ought to focus on is not just the salvation we've received in the past, but the saving, the rescuing, the delivering that God is doing in the present, the sanctifying that He is doing of us and our partners in the ministry, and that He is doing through us as we partner in the ministry in the lives of others. And so we should be thankful for our partners in the ministry. We should pray for them. And then thirdly, in the outline I say, we should be confident about our partners in the gospel. Verse 6 says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 gives the ultimate reason for this thanksgiving before God. In verse 5, he had described their perseverance from the first day until now, continually committing, committed to serving Jesus. Now in verse 6, it's a description of their preservation, what God was doing in their lives. He tells us in verse 6 the same thing that Paul had written in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May you be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. And so Paul can say this to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians because he was confident that God was at work in their lives. Their salvation, of course, was God's work. We need to be careful, friends, who it is we put our confidence in because men fail. And that's why Solomon said in Proverbs 25, like a broken tooth or a lame foot 
is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. Men are at times unfaithful. God is never unfaithful. God never fails. And that's why Paul can say to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians, I am confident of this. Not that I'm confident of you. I'm confident because God is at work in you. And God is the one who has called you out of the world and to himself. God was at work in their lives. And Paul's confidence was in God's work and in his ability to produce what he had planned. Not in the consistency of the the Philippians, as much as that was appreciated. Salvation is God's work. And therefore, we're to be confident that God is at work. Not only was Paul confident that it was God who had given them their salvation, and therefore, it would be brought to the end. But notice, he says... He who began a good work. And the implication is that God is still at work. He began and he's still at work. Since the point of conversion, God is still working in their lives. And there's truth then to the saying, be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. We need to be patient then with each other. Because we are all works in progress. God has begun a good work in you. God has begun a good work in me. It will be brought to completion. It will be brought to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was confident that God was at work in their lives. He was confident then that God would complete his work in their lives. Confident of this, he will bring it to completion, verse 6, until the day of Jesus Christ. What God started is now continuing in their lives and in our lives. It will one day reach its climax at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will see Him. And the entire Bible testifies of the persevering work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us of a faithfulness that will never be removed. It tells us of a life that will never end. It tells us of a spring of water that forever satisfies, a gift that will never be lost, a handout of which the good shepherd's sheep can never be snatched out of, a chain that will never be broken, a love from which will never be separated, a calling that will never be revoked, a foundation that can't be destroyed, an inheritance that will never fade. Thanks be to God. Until the day of Jesus Christ. This is how then we should view one another in God's family, partners in the gospel, but unfinished products on whom God is at work. Paul taught the preservation of the saints, God's work, God's initiative. All that they were doing was just a manifestation of the change that God had brought about in their lives. And what God was doing then, he would not set aside. He would preserve them to the coming of Jesus. He'll complete the work. And so we too can have this same kind of confidence. And we can say, the work that thou hast begun in me shall by thy grace be fully done. The Apostle Paul was thankful for his partners in ministry. He prayed for them. He was confident about them. And then verses 7 and 8 say this, and I say in your outline. We should love our partners in the gospel. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have put you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection 
of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice how this love, the word I've used, is described by Paul. He says, I have you in, in my heart. Now, we normally think of heart as primarily emotional, as we're going to see it includes that. But the, the heart is the seat of the individual in Scripture, includes the thinking. And so that's why Paul said back in verse 3, I thank God every time I remember you. And this love that I have for you is based upon, first of all, what I think about you, what I know about you. And this is what I know about you. You're the, the recipients of God's grace. You're my partners in the ministry. You've been faithful from the first day until now. And so he has this affection, but it's based, first of all, on, on, what, he, on what he thought of them. He thought of them, and therefore, though, he had affection for them. So love is more than affection, but it is not less than affection. And Paul says here he had both. I have you in my heart, verse 7, but then in verse, the end of verse 8, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. In verse 7 he says, Whether I'm in chains, defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Those two terms... Defending and confirming. They're legal terms, describing someone who stood before a judge to make a case. And the, Paul had in view here not just the proclamation of the word in general, but the task for which he had been brought to Rome in chains. The task of taking the gospel of Jesus before the most powerful man in the world. One day, he would stand before Caesar and give his testimony to the grace of God in his life. Caesar was a tyrant. He was whimsical. He had the power of life and death in his word. And yet this little Jewish preacher from Palestine, Paul, was brought before him, stood, and he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. And while Paul proclaimed Christ there in that courtroom, he understood he was supported by the prayers of his partners in the gospel. And because of their support, he was able to stand and with boldness proclaim Jesus Christ. And so he loved his partners because he carried them in his heart wherever he went, whatever the circumstances, knowing that they were sharers with him in this work. And verse 8 says, because of all of that, he longed for them. The book of Philippians is the most tender and affectionate of all the letters of the great apostle. There's a bond that's inseparable between those who serve together. There's a bond that cannot be broken between those who are truly partners in the gospel. And so Paul says, God can testify how I long for all of you in verse 8 with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is the way Paul viewed his life. My life is about Jesus and the message of Jesus and the advance of his mission in his world. And I thank God that he is calling a people out for himself who are working shoulder to shoulder to see that mission advance called his church. And he loved them. He loved the fact that God loved us and therefore we can love one another and that we're engaged in this partnership. The Word of God details for us farewells that Paul had to make to his partners in the gospel from time to time. One of the most amazing is found in Acts chapter 20 where Paul had visited the city of Ephesus. The Bible tells us he spent three years there. It's the longest period of time the Bible records Paul spending in a particular place. Three years in Ephesus. And by the time he was finished with that work, 
Verse 17 of Acts chapter 20 tells us that he called for the elders of the church. Now think about that. (laughs) He's been there three years, and that's been enough time for him to train leaders for that church. And most churches, he didn't spend three years. And then he says to them, you know how I've lived among you. Night and day with tears I have served among you. And now I commit you to our God and the word of his grace. The Bible says that they all wept as he left. That was the kind of camaraderie, the kind of partnership, the kind of affection that they had for one another. Friends, do you get the idea that the church is way more than a club? The church is not just a place I attend. The church is the place I serve. It's the place I serve with others who have been called out of the world and into his church by Jesus to carry out his work, to encourage and to be encouraged. I thank God every time I remember you. I could spend hours here. Perhaps I should sometime. You say that's okay. Just going through the trophies, the gems of God's grace that I'm looking at right now. And what I know about what God has done in your life and how I appreciate what God is doing in your life and how we are partners together in the ministry. That is a source of encouragement to me personally. We should be sources of encouragement to one another mutually. But in order for that to happen, church has to be more than just a place you go. For most of you, it is. That's why God has allowed this mission, his mission through this church to advance to this point. By God's grace, we're going to continue to advance his mission, but it will be through God's work in his people being partners in the gospel. And so for those of you for whom church is just a place you attend, I ask you to consider what the Bible teaches about what church really is. A called out people called together for a common purpose. We're going to pray in just a moment. But I encourage you to commit yourself to being one of those partners in the gospel. How would you do that? Well, avail yourself of the meetings that we have, Sunday morning obviously, but the meetings that we have where you have opportunity to get to know these partners in the gospel. Community groups is an ideal way to do that. That's why we offer them. It's primarily for relational purposes. But then our, more, our smaller meetings on midweek or some of the meetings we have through the week, ask at the information center about those opportunities. But with all of that, I say in our take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, believers in Jesus Christ enjoy unity based on our spiritual relationship and common purpose. Now, how do you become one of these called-out ones? How do you become a member of the body of Christ? One called to partner together to carry out his work. Well, you first come to Christ like Lydia did, like that Philippian jailer did, like Epaphroditus did, like Paul had to do, like I had to do, like every one of us has had to do. That work that is begun in you, that good work begun in you, begins by coming to Jesus. So how do I come to Jesus? Recognize that you are a sinner. Realize that it's, that it's your sin that brought Jesus to earth. God the Son came to earth because you are a sinner, because I'm a sinner. 
but recognize that God the Son could do for you what you could not do for yourself. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death that you and I deserved. He died on the cross to pay for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And you, like the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That believing means repenting. It means I turn to God and away from sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you with my life. I'm not going to go my own way any longer. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life, like Lydia did the first time she heard the gospel. You pray from your heart to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I want to follow you with my life. I ask you to save me. And he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the grand privilege of being your people, of being in your church. We thank you, Lord, that church is not just one among many organizations in your world. There are many, many, many organizations that do very good humanitarian things. I thank you for them in your common grace. But church, the church, was established by God himself. Lord, the church is your idea. The church is your people, and so it is therefore a people, and it is an institution that belongs to you. And it is about your purposes. You begin that mission by your work in the hearts of individuals, then bring us together in your providence at a point in time for such a time as this to carry out your mission in your world. We thank you for the examples we have in Scripture, like the Philippian brothers and the Thessalonian brothers and sisters. And we thank you, Lord, that we too stand in a stream of 2,000 years of your people carrying out your work. Thank you for bringing us together at this time and at this place to advance your mission. Lord, I pray that we will be people who are joyful because we remember what you have done in us and you are doing in others. Joyful because you have, in your mercy, made us partners in the gospel. Joyful because the work that you have begun is not finished and it will absolutely be completed. And Lord, help us then to go forward with joy and with unity as we carry out your work to spread your fame in your world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.